as I say, not the not the um the warmest time of the year to land no, in the ocean. No, not 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 a smashing time to you know we we are we are not talking about an uh, afternoon in Skegness or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> this would have been Your random pulls of places. <laughs> Last week it was Butlins, this week it's Skegness. This is what makes it homely. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the second episode of For You The War Is Over, presented by me, Dave, the History Nerd. And by me, Dave, the Tech Geek. But today we're going to be looking at the story of Flight Lieutenant Oliver Lawrence Sperling Philpot. I had to say that slowly to make sure I got all of his names correctly. Well, it's a fantastic name. <laughs> it's an amazing name. It's uh, well worth taking your time over. It. I know. And I also would like to apologise to anyone listening, as you probably can hear. I am suffering from croaky voice today, which is perfect for an audio podcast. So I do apologise for that first off. A voice for radio. Exactly. <coughs> or podcast for that matter. <laughs> um, so yeah, let, let's have a quick look at who Oliver Philpot was. He was a member of 42 Squadron in the Coastal Command of RAF, uh, flying out of Lookers, which is in Fife near St Andrews. Uh, there's still... Uh, not not an RAF airbase there that closed down a few years ago, but there's still flying taking place out of Lookers to this day. So ah. um, still an active flying location. Uh, he was born in Canada, actually, in okay, nineteen thirteen, but uh, came over to the UK and at the time of his capture was uh, twenty eight years old in December nineteen forty one. And so that made him 30 by the time of his escape. Okay. Um, so he was a, a, older than Codner, uh, but younger than Williams, if I remember correctly. We are, of course, looking at the second part of the wooden horse we escape. Are, yes. um, uh, we looked at Codner and Williams, who escaped with Philpot in the first episode. Uh-huh. Um, and... As I say, Oliver Philpot escaped with them and they went their separate ways. So there are two separate escapes from the one tunnel. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, looking forward to uh, getting into yeah, me too. Uh, this. Um, I should probably say thank you to everyone who has listened to the first episode so far. That's very true. It's very polite of you. But yeah, thank you very much to everyone yeah. who's listened so far. Yep. So it might be worth us just kind of kicking off with uh, his initial capture. That sounds good to me. Um, so he... On the 11th of December 1941, uh, he had taken off from RAF Lookers, which is in Fife, near St Andrews, uh, to uh, bomb uh, anti-shipping on an anti-shipping patrol uh, with, with bombing capability over a stretch of the Norwegian uh, coast. They made landfall about midday on the 11th of December and uh, proceeded south from there. Uh, taking in a radio direction finding station, uh, to, took photographs of that, uh, which quite important because you know this is all intelligence that they, presuming they had ever made it back, would have taken back, saying there's a radio direction finding yeah. station located here. And by the way, so that then, uh, you know, these these were similar to our radar stations in that they would track movement of enemy planes or their own planes, for that matter. Right. Okay. Um, and so. You know, this is quite important bit of information of intelligence to take back. So would that have been important to possibly say avoid this area, or would then someone would have possibly just tried to take it out type of thing, or more, more likely take it out? I think in reality, if you're 
um, pursuing operations over the coast of Norway is unavoidable to avoid a certain yeah. area. However, it is possible to take out the uh, station in question. So, as I say, useful bit of information for them to have taken back uh, had they ever made it back, well, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, on, on that day, they saw a convoy of 18, 20 ships coming north up the coast. And so they decided to attack it uh, at top speed, uh, doing a mast high bombing run over this 10 ton uh, motor vessel. Uh, however, when they were doing this attacking run, um, they were shot at and the plane that they were flying, which was a Beaufort, I think, was uh, sufficiently damaged in the starboard engine and tail for it to uh, be impossible for them to return to base, even though they were still flying at low low footage, at 80 to 100 feet off the ground, um, they were forced to land in the North Sea. Right. Uh, so bear in mind this is December. <laughs> and the North Sea is not famed for its warmth. As I say, so not the not the um the warmest time of the year to land. No, in the ocean. not 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 a smashing time to you know we we are we are not talking about an uh, afternoon in Skegness or something like that. <laughs> this would have been Your random pulls of places. <laughs> Last week it was Butlins. This week it's Skegness. This is what makes it homely. <laughs> um, so yeah, so they're they're they've had to crash land in the North Sea in December 1941. Yeah, uh, off the co- coast of Norway way um so we're talking about you know far north in the north sea this is not down by the channel not that that's famed for its warmth either <laughs> but uh certainly off the coast of norway is not famed for it for being warm either it's not yeah no uh and it's it says in his report that there were very heavy seas in a 48 knot wind so i i can't imagine this was a cam pitching into, no, into the sea it doesn't sound like a very comfortable landing no and the aircraft immediately broke uh in in was seriously damaged and immediately broke upon landing on the water and so they they managed to bail out of the plane and got into the dinghy and the, the, and the entire crew did successfully get into the dinghy um but as i said rough seas high winds cold weather yeah uh, this was not prime survival no not ideal situation for actually living a long healthy life in that no no um and so if I'm brutally honest, they were actually kind of lucky to survive. What just the ocean itself? Ju- just the sea itself. Yeah, yeah exactly. And in in the end, they actually ended up being in the North Sea for nearly two days. Wow, that's uh, a long time to be afloat in that condition. Yeah, I mean, for, 45, 45 hours. The report says, um, and so uh, they were they were floating in and out from the coastline, uh, so following the tides, I assume, but. Um, they were never close enough to actually be able to swim or row in with the dinghy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the conditions were so cold that despite seeing uh, two Heinkel 115s, which is a German plane, uh, fly over at their efforts to uh, release a um, distress signal, uh, their hands were too cold to actually fire the release. So they couldn't even operate the, the gun or anything? No, no, exactly. Um, which... You know, I can't. I can't imagine the Heinkel was the first choice that they wanted to attract attention of. No. But I suppose it's better than the alternative, which is freezing to death in the North Sea in a dinghy. Um, but they couldn't even. Op- they couldn't even put that option into into play because they couldn't work the flare. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. So um, I can't imagine being that cold. Yeah, and um, and I, I know Philpot later says that he actually had frostbite in his toes because he had just been wearing normal shoes. 
And what I find interesting about that is ordinarily, and I, I could be wrong about this, but ordinarily I understood that, that uh, any, anyone in the RAF were, was um, had distributed to them flying boots, which were fur-lined and purposefully, because th- this is sort of pre-decompression right. era of planes, yeah. and so it was cold. Yeah. Very cold. Mm. Uh, that's why, if you kind of think of the classic... Uh, pilot jacket of that time is far it's you know the it's, it's, yeah jacket, the big yeah. fur line Irwin yeah sheepskin yeah. jacket that's very true yeah of which I have one I know um, <laughs> it's awesome um, you know it's because it was so cold it, in and the and the flying boots of the time were also fur lined uh, it was far more common for the escapers to say that it was nearly impossible to run away in them rather than to say they never wore them at all <laughs> yeah. and so he seems to really. It seems to have been an error of judgment to have worn these shoes, but also really unlucky to end up in the North Sea while wearing them. Yeah. Um, uh, after 45 hours, nearly two days in the North Sea, they were eventually picked up by a German convoy, uh, which was uh, travelling down the coast um, of Norway. So yes, I mean, you know, Philpott says that he was largely treated very well, actually. They were taken down... Uh, to lower decks, given food and clothing, um, and yeah, mild interrogation, just to kind of you know, so they knew who they picked up. But yeah. by by and large, he said he was treated pretty well, um, and taken back to Norway, and uh, briefly kept in Norway actually to receive treatment for the frostbite in his foot before he was taken back over to uh, Germany itself for uh, captivity. Uh, Phil Pot actually went to a number of different camps. Uh, he was in Spangenberg for a while. Uh, went to Stalwood Three from Spang- Spangenberg. Uh, went to Schuben, and then went back to Sagan uh, Stalwood Three again. Now the reason for that is actually covered in his book, uh, whereby essentially they were told it was going to be a brand new camp that they were going to in Schuben uh, in Poland. And so he thought, well, if a, a brand new camp hasn't got all these tunnels peppered all over them, there might be better opportunities for escape. So he ended up actually volunteering to go there. Ah. And <clears throat> when he realised that it was a pretty highly secure camp, he essentially volunteered to come back again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not, not that Stalgov 3 wasn't pretty high, highly secured, as we covered last time. Um, but, um, but yeah, that was essentially why he went and came back again he's always always got escape on his mind this guy yeah he's a wee bit obsessed actually <laughs> um he's he's one of those <laughs> one, of, one of the small percentage that you mentioned last week precisely yes um he's certainly in the five percent i mean stalgo 3 was a purpose purpose built camp um unlike i suppose most famously called it but a number of others similarly where they basically um, commandeered an existing building. Okay, Stalwood right. 3 was purpose built as a prison camp and therefore uh, you have the compound with the huts in the middle and uh, maximum distance from the edge. So in theory a lot harder to escape from. Exactly. So right. he thought well a transfer elsewhere might give me a better opportunity. Yeah that makes sense. That, that was the theory yeah. however in fact he, he so he returned to Stalwood 3 in April 1943, which is about six months before his eventual escape from it. Um, he, ha- he actually has quite quite an interesting insight into the um, escape theory, I suppose, of Stalwood 3. As I said, he said escape is exceedingly difficult, uh, as was intended to be. Um, you know, he, he even says that 
uh, no one had succeeded in making a local break from the East Compound where he was for over a year by the time he had escaped. So, you know, we're we're talking about no successful breakout in a year. From even within the block. Even within the block, ex- uh, within the compound, exactly. You know, wire schemes are suicidal and orthodox tunnels are found uh, somewhere between 45 and 60 of them in the summer of 1942 alone. Um... You know, there, there are two gates and an ever-changing pass system, so it's nearly impossible to keep up to date with all the passes and therefore making forgery far harder. Yeah. Uh, if there's only two gates, it means that uh, the gatekeepers are more likely to be familiar with those who are going in and out on yeah. a regular basis. Therefore, your face not, might not immediately pass. Um, and interestingly, and I, I, I love this quote because it almost sums up precisely what Style Wolf 3 is famous for. The only method, uh, he, he says, the only method from the East Compound is, I think, something entirely new and original. What he's saying here is that something highly, highly original and you, almost unique is the only way you can succeed in escaping from Style Wolf 3. Yes. I... Think it's fair to say that the wooden horse and the great escape fall under that category. Yeah, I mean, they succeeded in the in the way they did for for the probably for that reason because yeah. they were highly original and unique. Yeah, and in highly sophisticated escapes, each in their own right, very yeah. different escapes, but highly sophisticated in their own right. And so, I think it's an interesting quote from his, yeah. from Phil Pod where he states that that is what is necessary to succeed in escaping from this camp. Yeah. Um and so yeah, it, it, we we've covered a great deal of the wooden horse in the first episode uh, yep. with Connor and Williams and if you are joining us on this episode please do go back to episode 1, uh, download it, give it a listen. Mm. Feel free to give us a review if you want. If you like to. Uh, always happy to hear feedback. Yeah. Um so you know please do go back and listen. However, I think it's worth just maybe giving a 5 minute summary of the wooden horse as was. Yeah. Sakan, where it was uh, located, is just over 100 miles uh, east, southeast of Berlin. It's in what is now Poland. Obviously, it was occupied at the time, but it's yep. uh, in the west of Poland, not a million miles from the Poland-Germany border, actually. Okay. Um, and it held uh, nearly 4,000 prisoners. It's a fairly sizable camp um, in separated into four different compounds. So in actual fact, the compound that this took place in, although it was the same camp as the Great Escape, it was a different compound. Right. Uh, which uh, Paul Brickhill does actually refer to in his book of the Great Escape. Uh, he mentions that it was taking place around about the same time, but from a completely different compound. So there was no overlap, even though same camp. Um, and I think we mentioned last time... Um, that despite it being one of the highest security camps, it also had two of the most famous escapes yeah, take place. Yeah, you from said, it. and I was quite surprised. But you said that they were basically the only two, or very, or or of a very limited number, at least. Exactly. Yes. Um, and, oh, I mean, of those two, the number of successful home runs only totaled six. Yeah. Uh, out of seventy nine who got out between the two escapes, 
and of course three of them were from the wooden horse and all three of them got home so the the success rate was far more successful in this one than i was gonna say Steve. yeah one would argue that this uh, this one was better <laughs> yes exactly but um philpot actually gives quite a lot of detail on the various um as, uh, uh, on the various aspects of the security within the camp but also the different options of escape what what I typically refer to, and the prisoners themselves typically would refer to as under, over, or through. So that that is in reference to the uh, fences, so you, uh, the you know security barbed wire fences, yeah. whereby you could either go under them, over them, or through them. Right. Um, okay. And uh, tunnels are of course under them. Yep. And are the most famous version of an escape because typically when we think of an escape, we often think of the tunnel. Um, but they were actually the least used. Uh, form of escape around only around about seven percent of successful escapes were actually successful through a tunnel i imagine possibly because of the effort involved in tunneling precisely um and so so as i say philpot actually kind of gives his own analysis here and i might might read a little bit out uh yeah go for it from it he's he's um as i say he's talking about security and then escape so escape is exceedingly difficult as the Luftwaffe intended it should be when building the camp no one has got home direct from Zagan and no one has succeeded in making a local break from the east compound where I was for over a year wire schemes so that would be through uh, are suicidal and orthodox tunnels are found somewhere between 45 and 60 of them in the summer of 1942 uh, so that you know this kind of shows the ever-increasing level of sophistication in German German security mm-hmm. efforts of a camp of um, ensuring that prisoners of war couldn't escape and you know that level of sophistication went right down to having microphones planted in the ground to hear the t- sound of tunneling wow um, there were you know they had uh, I think I referred to last time the ferrets who were the um, security guards who would go around poking holes uh, <laughs> trying to find tunnels and checking um, the structures and the foundations of the huts so that the you know to see if they were trying to tunnel through those foundations and that sort of stuff that actually explains why because I, I knew that they referred to them as ferrets but I just assumed it was just some nasty nickname that they'd come up with but the fact that they actually poke through the ground and dig all that stuff up actually fully explains why that oh, okay mystery solved in my own head <laughs> exactly um as I'll, I'll keep reading um there are two gates in an ever-changing pass system the only method from east compound is i think something entirely new and original which i thought was an interesting point that he was making about it having to be new and original to succeed when you consider that the two escapes that are associated with this camp were highly original yeah um you've got a on, on the one hand the use of a vaulting horse in the middle of a compound which we'll get into more detail in a moment and then with the great escape you've got 600 prisoners all digging uh three different tunnels simultaneously six, uh 30 odd feet under the ground highly sophisticated um escape network where they had people forging passes and all this sort of stuff so the the point that he's making here about the necessity to be highly new and original in order to succeed from a camp like this is kind of highlighted in the actuality of the escapes that took place here yeah the fact Uh, that the fact that any normal escape attempts they've just got covered in their security so you just couldn't possibly do it it, exactly and you know 45 to 60 tunnels were found in the summer of 1942 alone i mean that's incredible i was going to mention that as well because the fact that that many were found during one summer period one year 
is a, a testament to how how well they were finding them, but also just shows you how many people were trying to tunnel out at the yes. same time. And the dedication of the prisoners to keep going, even, yeah, I know. even when they were found. I mean, that 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 works out, you know, if... if uh, actually, cut that. Yeah, fine. Um, so moving, moving on to the tunnel itself and the escape effort, uh, as we covered in the last episode, um, a hollow vaulting horse was taken out into the exercise compound, placed in the same location every single time, and from there, uh, two tunnelers who were hiding inside the hollow vaulting horse would start digging a tunnel from the same spot every single time. Yeah, so they, they would dig a tunnel from the middle of the exercise compound every single day. Uh, this meant that the tunnel was close to 100 feet rather than 300 feet, which means that the logistics are much easier, much shorter, uh, less sand to disperse, yeah. less time in which to have to tunnel and less time in which to be discovered. And also, as I said at the uh, last time, you're effectively hiding in plain sight. And so... Uh, in some ways, they weren't looking for a tunnel in the middle of the exercise compound in the way that they were looking for a tunnel uh, out of the huts, out of the latrines, out of the theatre, the canteen, barber shop, all this sort of stuff. They were looking for tunnels there. Yeah. They were not looking for a tunnel in the middle of an exercise compound. Well, so, because as far as they were concerned, they already had it covered in their, in their visual inspection of, of, the, of you know, the exercise court anyway. It, exactly. And they were watching you know, prisoners vaulting every day for an hour at a time so um as far as they could tell it was actually a very safe secure bit of exercise you yeah. know exercise has been spent on vaulting not on escape yeah little did they know um hang on. we we did mention last time about how stuffy and uh inhospitable it could be in a tunnel because it's human width wide yeah you know, it's not it's not a wide tunnel you haven't got lots of space uh, the air is dank. It is unpleasant. The it's musty. It's, I mean, you're breathing your own exhalation, so it's yeah. it's not good for you. It's probably hot and humid in there as well. Hot, humid. You've got sand and um, yeah. They, I mean, they they dug naked um, because if you were wearing clothes, that might cause uh, fall a fall of sand, uh, and you were then essentially blocked in. Uh, if you were, if there was a um, if you were caught in the fall, there was a serious danger, especially if you were down there alone, of staying there. Yeah. Um, forever. <laughs> uh, and well, basically, true, yeah. <laughs> you were yeah. you were in many ways risking digging your own grave, and so the less risk there was of a fall, the better. So that's why they dug naked. And, and um, I would also have thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you if you dig naked, or if you dug with clothes on there's a much higher chance of there being sand or, or dirt on you when you come back up. So there is. So yeah. there's sort of more visible potential giveaway that you're actually digging in the sand rather than vaulting or whatever you were supposed to be doing. Yes, exactly. Although you wouldn't appear until you were back inside the canteen. Um, I do have to correct a, a factual inaccuracy from episode one where I, th I think i refer to it as the theater it was actually the canteen they went uh, back into. no we did say theater but yeah um so it, w it was the canteen okay. that they went back into um but you you wouldn't appear until you were back inside door so in inside the canteen so um there was less risk of being seen uh but yeah they they typically would dig naked but that's as uh Philpot very kindly highlights caused some anus trouble for Flight Lieutenant Eric Williams. I'm sure he is so grateful that 
uh, this made it into an official report and that we are now reading that <laughs> out for him for the for you the war is over podcast <laughs> to go on the internet forever <laughs> forever uh, i'm sure his family will be writing to us with stern and angry words um but do you know uh, uh, there is a serious point here though which is you know we, we we've said before about how these are true stories they are adventure stories but there were but but because they're real it comes with real problems as well you know it wasn't a flawless exercise it you know it had its problems it had its issues they came up against difficulties and then that would include impacts upon your health and so i think it is almost important to actually highlight you know this this was a hugely successful escape a, a thrilling adventure story that comes with it but there were serious negative impacts that came with it as well yeah and, and there were illnesses experienced and there were um it had an impact upon your health doing this stuff it wasn't a it wasn't jolly hockey sticks in in a butlins camp in the middle of germany or occupied poland as it was in this case <laughs> Uh, bringing them all out now, don't you? I know you're going <laughs> to keep going through several different holiday camps as well. Yeah, quite right. And I, I, you know, I was just going to add, if you do want to write angry letters or anything, you know, you can be found at our Twitter account. So. <laughs> um, it wasn't an easy existence. Yeah. And if you were choosing to do something difficult like escape, you made a difficult existence harder, and it yep. came with health warnings and. So yeah, as much as we're kind of laughing at the mention of anus trouble, um, there's the third time because we're childish. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is the third time. Um, it, it has a serious point that comes yeah. with it. The, there was um, there was actually one other point about the actual um, digging aspect in the tunnel scheme itself that I kind of wanted to highlight. There's actually a point that we we touched upon in the last episode, but again, Philpot actually specifically mentions this in his escape and uh, again I'm, I'm going to quote from the report um the whole scheme was only made possible by a volunteer band of extremely unselfish helpers who were called on uh, to come and vault time and again and who knew they never had any chance of escaping themselves members of the escape committee were among those who went out of their way not only to give general help but to come and vault themselves which for me highlights the importance of the vaulters in this you know yeah. it, it was an, a hugely unselfish act because you were expending exercise, exercising calories that you didn't necessarily have. You know, I mentioned before about how the Geneva Convention uh, legally required that the prisoners were given a minimum number of calories, but it it was round about twelve hundred, and then uh, we know we know that the minimum requirement for a male fully grown male is about 2000 and even with the supplementary uh, calories given by the red cross parcel food it was quite high risk to go off and do serious exercise like yeah, this yeah I, I could well imagine just based on what you're saying there that a lot of people were left tired and and and, and possibly weak from this as well yes exactly and so um there was, there was certainly, yeah, there was, I mean, there was some potentially serious implications for the vaulters themselves. And as the report just said, you know, there was no hope of them actually making an escape in all this. It was an incredibly unselfish act to take part in yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, that's still mind-blowing to me. The, the, yeah. The fact that people who, uh, you know, they, they were they knew enough and, and were interested enough in the idea of escape to sort of have that knowledge, but were willing to, to, to take part knowing that they would never have any part in this escape attempt. Yeah, 
and the, and you know as i said before you know it was around about five to fifteen percent of the yeah. population were involved in escapes that still means that there were as much as 95 percent uh not not involved and so they they often gave unselfishly of their time in this way so that you know there was no no real danger of them ever being shot at for doing that but uh but they you know they were still involved still supportive but uh as i say there were some potentially serious health implications for taking part in this sort of exercise um and and without them, it would never have worked. Absolutely not. No, Be- because you know if you, if you've got a group of people carrying out a horse every day to put down the woods you just never used and then put back again, that's going to draw attention at some point. Yeah, you don't take a vaulting horse into the middle of an exercise compound to stand around and smoke your pipe. No, um, it has to be used. Yeah, um, there's there's no way you can get around that. And so yeah, and it, it was actually quite reassuring to see philpot give that acknowledgement you know to recognize that yes three people got out and that's fantastic and three of them got home and that's a great success but it was a success it was a win for other people too you know yeah, it was yeah, yeah. um you know there must have been another 20 or so people involved in this uh exercise in this escape attempt um and yet they they never really got to experience the freedom, got to experience the glory, um, the recognition. You know, one or two of them are mentioned in the book, but the book doesn't give real names. It uses pseudonyms. Um, and so the, the, you didn't get recognized in the publishing either. No. Uh, which which followed, or, or and the, the film which followed that uses the pseudonyms. Um, so... So yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to draw that out uh, from it. So the, the escape itself uh, took place on the 29th of October, um, which, as we said, they, they went down and escaped round about six o'clock in the evening. Mm-hmm. It was after parade in which they were counted in Appel, uh, but it gave them an hour to get to Zagan uh, train station because the nearest train... Uh, the next train, I should say, was um, was at seven o'clock. Was at seven o'clock. Yeah, which then meant that they could get out of out of the n- immediate vicinity of the camp uh, in relatively rapid time. Um, well, not relatively, an extremely rapid time. Yeah, no, I mean they were away in an hour. <laughs> exactly, and as we discussed last time, the uh, the the manhunt essentially worked in concentric circles, moving out from the camp and so they because they wouldn't have been discovered until around about midday the next day they were well clear by this stage although they were both going to the train station they separated immediately so as soon as they broke out of the tunnel they went their separate ways yeah so, so even though that when they got to sagan train station they did see each other they were now traveling separately there was no interaction whatsoever and from sagan train station onwards there was no no contact. They didn't see each other. There was no and perfectly intentional, um, but there was no overlap whatsoever. They were completely separate by this stage. So yeah. the second they left the tunnel, they went their separate ways. It's interesting considering the first destination was the same. Yes, the but even, even then, still. Yeah, because yeah. I liked there was a line in here when they said uh, when Philpot said he saw one of them buying tickets ahead of him in line. But then once they stepped on the train, that was the last time we saw him, basically. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
And there's a couple of interesting comments that Phil Pop makes. Um, I decided immediately after the Shubin break of March 43 that train travel was the best escape method. So clearly he's you know learning from a previous escape attempt. He's wh- whether it was uh, from him or from someone else that he's learned that from. You know he's clearly made up his mind. He's building on his experience and yes. knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And it all contributes to the final escape uh, here. And, you know, there, there were essentially two ways to es- to escape once you're away. You could either go by public transport or you could travel by foot. Yeah. And so, you know, he's decided that to go by public transport was the best way for him. And But that, of course, brings with it certain responsibilities. Yes. Uh, and requirements, not least of which was being able to assimilate into the wider population. Mm-hmm. And so he develops his own sort of personality and cover story here. Um. And he says, my story was that I was her Jon Jorgensen, a quizzling Norwegian, on an exchange from Fredrikstad. Uh, so he's basically posing as a margarine salesman from, right. from Norway okay. and uh, <laughs> claiming to be a quizzling. Uh, yeah, sorry, Dave, what is a quizzling? So a, um, quizzling was actually a person. Oh, okay. Um, so quizzling, uh, Vidkun? Quizzling, I think his name was. Right, okay. Um, in fact, I, th- I think this is another example of where we've completely butchered the local language. Not us personally. Qui- <laughs> Quizzling is the way most, in fact, all English speakers pronounce it. But I think in Norwegian it's actually Kisling. Right. Or Kisling or something Ki- something like that. Okay, I have okay, heard okay. the correct pronunciation, but it's one of those where we've completely butchered it. And so Quizzling was uh, essentially <clears throat> the puppet head of the Norwegian <clears throat> fascist government that was put in place under nazi occupation of right Norway. okay 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 and so those who supported them were considered quizlings however in this day and age it is now used mm. as a term for a traitor okay it is shorthand for someone who was a traitor and so with with um so with, you know he, he's built up this uh fake personality this cover story yeah. of mm. Jon Jorgensen the quizzling Norwegian uh, seemingly overlooking the fact that he didn't speak a word of Norwegian and so you're essentially traveling through <laughs> occupied Europe in the vain hope of hoping to not bump into another, <laughs> another Norwegian, Norwegian. which as, as we learned in the previous uh, Codner and Williams escape when someone announces these people are Swedish yeah and then someone actually comes up and speaks Swedish to them and they're a bit stumped and then she's like oh um yeah bye yeah see you later (laughs) it's you know you might think i'll travel through europe and not bump into a single norwegian and you know it's perfectly plausible but it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he would have actually bumped into a norwegian and had to speak norwegian when you're staking your entire fake identity whilst you're trying to escape on it it's a potentially fairly risky move yes and i think i'm right in saying that he did speak german so as you you know he he wasn't incapable of speaking a foreign language and assimilating through speaking German. Yeah. So it does seem quite a risky move. However, <laughs> you know, f- fair play to him. But with that comes the need for a number of other uh, covers. So he he had to take papers with him, and he really had an extensive. List yeah, he of did. It's quite impressive. He took nine different sets of papers. Uh, with him to travel through occupied Europe and to establish his escaping guys, essentially. So, you know, the standard paperwork of an Ausweis, uh, he even took some police uh, paperwork to cover for him, an Arbeitskarte, which is um, a work card. 
uh, but to yeah, yep. uh, prove that he was there as a worker because he was claiming to be an exchange worker from the, from Norway. Um, letters from his uh, employer, introduction letters, membership cards, um, and even a bogus uh, Swedish sailor's pass for when he reached the dock part of his journey. So he was truly prepared for all stages of this. Yeah, and I really thought this through. You know, there was a lot of preparation and detail yeah. included in his plan for escape. Um, and then, similar to Codner Williams, he you know he talks about how his outfit needed to be respectable, um, needed to appear respectable. You know, he's trying to assimilate into the wider population, the civilian population. Therefore, he had to look the part. Yeah. Um, you know, he even says, "Once I started looking like a tramp, I considered I should be ruined." Um, you know, his his escape would have been over as soon as he looked. Uh, like a down and out and so he had an anthony eden hat a hitler mustache which is a strong look yeah um raf officer's great coat raf gloves a new pair of shoes um a pair of fleet air arm trousers and a nondescript black civil jacket and he carried a small suitcase with him uh for the means of keeping looking well shaved and smart in it and secondarily he he carried some camp escape food and some margarine product as cover. So that if someone did try to question him on the margarine, he was carrying some. Hey, sample. Yes, but also it gave him food to yeah. eat if he needed it. Um, wouldn't much want to chow down on margarine for a long period of time. No, but, but if you need the calories and the fats, yeah, then... Um, it's better than nothing, yeah. certainly. I um, do like... Are you about to mention the last bit on the list as well? well it's, it's my favourite, the line. Oh, please go ahead. It's my favourite. He said... I had a pipe to cover any lingui- linguistic lapses and to give me an excuse for not speaking clearly. So I love the idea that if someone tries to talk to him and he doesn't quite know what to say, shove the pipe in his mouth and mumble. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's fantastic. It's, yeah. uh, but, you know, it's it worked. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, having made their break on the evening, six o'clock, bang on the bang on the minute uh, of the 29th of October they headed straight to Sagan uh, train station and got a, a, caught the Berlin Express but they didn't go all the way he got off at Frankfurt planning to get a connection uh, to Kustrin however uh, there was no um, immediate connection he had to wait till the following morning uh, in order to head on so um what I find interesting about this is, you know, similar to what we mentioned with uh, in episode one with Codner and Williams, he's taking a series of smaller trains yes. to reach his final destination. You know, he's not rather than just taking one big journey straight to the end. Yeah, I mean, even getting the train to Berlin, but getting off early and just kind yeah. of uh, doing it sequentially, um, as, as you know, a series of smaller journeys in order to reach his final destination. You know, it, it's designed to arouse a lot less suspicion. Yeah. Um, and again, seemed to work. Um, so yeah, he hung about Kustrin until uh, the following morning, uh, about ten thirty the next morning. Um, so he got yeah again he got the Königsberg Express, but only went as far as Dershow. Um, however, the, you know, I keep I keep saying, and I'll probably say it in many more episodes to come. What I love about these stories is the tiny little details that make it interesting. Yep. And there's one incident here that I quite enjoy in that in order to avoid conversation, he would either pretend or completely fall asleep. However, on one occasion when he did fall asleep, he fell asleep on his case, on his suitcase, 
um, but you know, basically fell off and shouted damn in a loud voice to the general amusement of surrounding soldiers and civilians. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea if damn is a common uh, German word, but it seems quite high risk. It's certainly, yeah. you know, certainly a common word in the English language. Yeah, definitely. And so he seems to have got away with it almost. You would have thought someone might have spotted it as an English word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yet they seem to have just laughed it off. Uh, which is great for him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, having having got to Darshau, he then, you know, again, took a series of smaller trains bit by bit, working his way towards Danzig, which he actually reached at five o'clock that evening. And it's interesting that he, he essentially reaches his final destination, or at least final destination in occupied Europe, less than a day after he emerged from the tunnel. In fact, he gives an exact time it was 22 hours and 55 minutes after emerging from the tunnel um that's pretty quick escaping <laughs> that is, is very rapid and that does show you the advantage of the train yeah. style of escape is how quickly you can move and that was with waiting for trains as well yeah that was with a stopover you know he, he was planning to get an earlier train at frankfurt uh on his way to kirsten but he missed that and had to hang around until the following morning he felt it was important to avoid nights in the open in order to remain fit and more more importantly uh, of good appearance and so he he went to Hotel Continental, which was just across from the uh, Hauptbahnhof, which is the train station, and asked for a room in which he describes my reception as unfriendly, but I think that may have just been the reception receptionist normal attitude, <laughs> which is <laughs> such a dry description of you know the the sort of grumpy old <laughs> receptionist who welcomed him. And I, um, I love the idea that even in this report, he's just judging the receptionist or, or the attitude of people that he's met along the way there yeah yeah shamelessly slain <laughs> throwing shade <laughs> but he he then talks about how they had to fill out a form which is you know still standard practice yeah um but but the interesting thing was even in the middle of you know we are now in 1943 and late 1943 by this stage so the war has been going on nearly four years and even at this stage the form that he has to fill out in the hotel has all the questions written in english they were written in German and French as well. But it's also in English. But it's also in English. And I just, I always just find that really quite amusing. Because it's like, you'd think by 1943 they would have done away with anything that was written in English. But but it's a hotel. That's testament to even, they, they do that today, even that they've just got a system. Yes, but we're not at war <laughs> today. But, but according to that, you know, in the hotel, they've got a system that works and they're just going to keep using it. It's German efficiency, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is traditional German efficiency. It's a good way to help them blag his way through the questions as well yes yeah exactly exactly once, once he'd settled himself into the danzig and got himself a hotel room he actually ended up taking um almost a pleasure cruise around the um <laughs> around the harbor and he essentially used the ferry that kind of moved people around the harbor as a as a pleasure cruise to look around and oh, just kind of get his bearings and and recognize um try and identify some Swedish ships or Danish ships yeah. if if possible uh, so that he might be able to identify a way to stow away and escape across the Baltic Sea to Sweden. And so yeah, ha having identified the ship that he wanted to take um, he it, it took a, what I think was always a little bit of a, a risk in that he walked 
just you know just away from the harbor slightly find himself a nice little pine forest and effectively buried all his clothing well not all his clothing he he basically buried his hat and coat and what have you now okay he could have got it back but i always thought it was a little bit of a risk just in case he didn't manage to get on the ship to have effectively discarded half his clothing um yeah that seems a bit a, a very bold move at the very least yeah however it's you know interesting he talks about it being a possible lineup place for fu- for would-be future escapers and even comments that the police dock supervision all around danzig seems poor um which is a poor reflection on the police of danzig um but a useful bit of information if you're in a, a future escaper i was gonna say it sounds like He's preparing that information to pass on. Yes, exactly. For, for future yeah. things, yeah. He's gathering useful intelligence, escape intelligence for future escape, or possibly his future escape if he is recalled, because he is going all in here. He's yeah. uh, the the deck is loaded. Um, he, yeah, he's definitely putting it all on the line for this. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, he he heads down to harbour and starts uh, scoping out his uh, intended ship. And immediately spots that the gangway is guarded by a sentry, so he needs to find another alternative. Yeah. So he heads down to the, uh, I think it was the bow of the ship he went to, and starts shimming his way up a, a chain. Which is an impressive effort, I have to say. It is, actually, to yeah. shimmy up one yeah. of those trains. Fueled by margarine, no doubt. <laughs> um, I mean... Copious amounts of margarine. I've never tried to shimmy up a chain. I have tried a rope climb. And that is very difficult. Neither seem very tempting. So to me. I can imagine that a chain climb is just as hard. Yeah, exactly. Add to that the cold chain, wet chain. Possibly slimy chain. Possibly slimy chain. At least he's not got his hat to bother him, though. That's <laughs> true. So that, that's a bonus. Um, however, ha- having chosen a, a cable to uh, climb up, having you know, he he reached the end of it, and essentially it was the wrong cable. Got him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I think it would be actually because <laughs> the chain essentially went round the far side of the ship, and so when he got to the um, bow point of the ship, there was no handholds for him right. to hold on to. So he just couldn't get any further. He just along. couldn't get any further. He says he knocked on the porthole uh, with no result, and so returned to uh, shore. Uh, gave himself a little bit of a rest, and then picked another. Uh, cable to climb up and this time he was successful um that it went through a hole in the side plating and so he climbed through that hole onto the deck and went below deck as soon as possible in order to avoid being seen that's fair seems wise yeah um smart move and so yeah so he went he went uh, below deck as soon as possible and essentially was trying to find a crew member to help him help him hide and I kind of—I actually want to read out his description of this, um, because of this episode, because it's quite—it's quite interesting reading his interaction with neutral sailors in occupied Europe right. who are confronted by an escapee. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I felt that my ignorance of where the German search party looked and where they did not look was so great that what might appear to be a wonderful hiding place to me might turn out to be just where they regular ser- regularly searched. Hence, the obvious thing to do was get help. After I approached the steward, the chief mate appeared. Neither would say anything definite until the captain was brought and then the chief engineer joined us and a sort of conference was held half in and half out of the cabin. 
I asked to stay and stressed the fact that no one had seen me get on board. The captain said that the war was going to last only another three or four months, which seems ambitious in October 1943. I was going to say, it's still a little bit of time left to go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the captain said the war was going to last only another three or four months and asked why I did not return to Germany, as if I stayed, he might he might be hanged. It was not worth his while to risk this, uh, even for the £500 which I offered him, and he said I must leave the ship. He also recommended another Swedish ship further down the, the dock. I offered to disappear, meaning to hide myself on his ship and not reappear until later. The captain then slipped away without making any attempt whatsoever to remove me physically from his ship or to report me to the Germans on, on the adjacent dock. A couple of points I want to pick up on in that. Uh, first of all, he automatically recognises the need for help. You know, yeah. he, he doesn't know the ship. He doesn't know um, the searching methods of the Germans here. And so he's instantly thinking, well... I'm out of my depth here. Yeah. I need some help. Um, Which is a very... It's a smart move from him. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's been so prepared up until this point. Yeah, exactly. He gets to a point where he he doesn't know. It is now out of his hands. Yeah. Basically. You know, I, I just... You know, certainly the, the captain's assertion that three or four months of the war was left when in actual fact it was close to two years. Um, 18 months to two years. Yeah. It certainly seems ambitious uh, at this stage. And so he was right to ignore him there. Um, however, you know, credit to the captain. You know, he does say uh, he slipped away without ma- making any attempt whatsoever to remove me physically from his ship. Now, I, th- I thought that was quite an interesting wording because I read that as him kind of going, well, if he's not going to move me, I'm not going to go. Yeah. He's taking any excuse not to leave this ship. Yeah. And also from the captain, well, from 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 Philpott's point of view of his description of the captain's actions... Mm. It seems like the captain is sort of trying for some plausible deniability here. Yes, oh, absolutely. He's, yeah. he's well aware that if he walks away, Philbot's not leaving the, the ship. Yeah. But he could claim, I told him to leave, I told him to get off. It's not to, my fault he didn't. To, to go to another Swedish ship. Yeah. <laughs> even. Which, <clears throat> who in their right mind would go, yeah, no problem. I'll just head down the gangway, past the sentry, head on up to the other Swedish ship and <laughs> try my luck there because having got on this ship, I'm definitely going to leave. Let me just shimmy back down that chain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was just never going to happen. And so essentially, you know, he he kind of made to leave, but of course didn't. Basically, as he was allowed to, um, as Philpott was, was allowed to, wander away one of the other crewmen pointed out to pointed in a direction that felt it might be helpful for him shall we say in other words if you come this way i will show you where to hide yeah um so yeah he initially hid in the coal bunker uh it and he describes it as not a place that i recommend since besides being uncomfortable it seems practically impossible to cover oneself up properly with coal (laughs) um i should imagine even the stupidest german could find one there especially if accompanied by a dog um so initially he hid in the coal bunker but then he was taken down to a tank just described as a tank and bolted in I assume the tank was empty. I was going to say, presumably <laughs> it's empty. Or, or It was an oil tank. It was, ah. It'd obviously been filled with oil. So I assume this was some sort of um, engine oil or something like that. Yeah. For, um, something that had been used and is now empty. Exactly. But uh, eventually they cast off on the 2nd of November and basically the crew continued to provide him with food and water. Uh, while he was down there. Um, it can't have been a comfortable place to be if it had previously had oil in it. 
no because of the 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 vapor that you know the oil would have still been in the air exactly however uh one, you know once they got out into neutral water the crew basically took him out again and actually took him up to the captain uh, again <laughs> <laughs> who uh he basically told he had found his way to the bunker unaided um so lied shamelessly to the captain oh. and um but you know he he says that the captain you know he he was never he was never upset about helping them. It was just he was frightened of the Gestapo. And yeah. Quite frankly, the Gestapo's reputation I mean, it's is well earned. <laughs> yeah, it's understandable to be frightened of them. Yeah, exactly. And so they, they, they sailed from Danzig um, and made their way eventually. So they, they did make uh, stops in Stettin and Lübeck. And you know, he says that the captain once once introduced properly, he entertained him as a guest on the boat, on the on the ship, uh, in a very hospitable hospitable fashion. Eventually, making landfall in Sweden in on the third of November, which is only five days after. As I said, not long, is it? No, not at all. From the twenty ninth of October to the third of November, uh, he'd made it to neutral Stockholm. Uh, so as I say, in five days, which as again is a testament to the speed at which he was able to travel. Um, so that that is that is the escape of Oliver Philpotts. Yeah. Um, and you know between between him, Williams, and Codner, it's uh, that makes up the entirety of the wooden horse escapes. And yeah, it's, it's just a it's such an ingenious in. There's so much ingenuity that's gone into sort of getting them out, but as yeah. it, you know, getting out is half the battle. It's getting away again, and the way that they planned it and spent time on it. You know, he said he'd be planning it since April, but they broke out in October, so he'd spent six months planning this escape in order to to get away. And I imagine it was much the same for Williams and Codner. And so it's a it's a really detailed escape, and yet. In its implementation, it was over in a flash. Yeah, um, um, but like you say, in just terms of um, the the fact that he had nine different pieces of identification and paperwork, and he had the clothes, and he had the money, and he had everything like that. It's just, it just, I still find it hard to wrap my head around the fact that they were able to manage to get hold of all of that information, all of that stuff, whilst in the prisoner of war camp. And then, like you say, the second they actually they spend so long planning it, and the second they actually break ground on the other side of of the tunnel and get out, they just have to move yeah. in a flash. There's there's no way to rethink it, to replan it, to 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 redo anything. You've just got to go. Yeah, yeah, and, and exactly. assume that what you've done already is is good enough. Yeah, stick for, to the plan yeah. and make the best of it because. And the, you know you're right. They had papers. They had clothes. They had ID. They had shaving kits. They had margarine. Um, the, the floor, you know, got to have the samples if you work in the business. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it was good cover. Actually, it was very <laughs> clever, and that meant that you could also eat it if in if in a pinch. Um, but you know, none of these things guaranteed success. The fact that they had success does not mean that having all these things guaranteed success. No. There were plenty of people that had all of these materials that didn't succeed but this is an example of a very very well executed very well thought out in ingenious escape that took place and it, i think it's just a great place to start our two first two episodes for the podcast 
Okay, um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, we could be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. Um, if you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O-Pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.